2: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Beth Accomando.
0: Thank you. Looking forward to this.
2: Also back in the booth is Mr. Mike Malloy.
5: Wearing cowboy boots today, but then again, I wear cowboy boots every day.
2: Spaghetti Western Month continues with a look at Sergio Salima's 1966 film, The Big Gundown*. It's the story of Jonathan Corbett, played by Lee Van Cleef, a bounty hunter who is being wooed to run for the U.S. Senate. He's asked to pursue the criminal Cuchillo, played by Thomas Millian, who's been accused of raping and murdering a 12-year-old girl things aren't quite as simple as that we will be spoiling the film as we go along so if you haven't seen the big gun down go watch and come back we'll still be here so beth when was the first time you saw the big gun down and what did you think
0: I don't remember specifically when I saw it. I remember being a teenager and growing up near the Vogue Theater in San Diego and seeing films like Ducky Sucker and Fistful of Dollars, and it all kind of was a blur at a certain point. So I'm not sure when I saw it, but I do know that I really fell in love with these uh, spaghetti westerns because they were... They were so appealing. They were over the top. And they had this weird quality of being foreign and also being American at the same time. And I remember kind of that that was a little confusing to me as a kid at that point, because there would be stars like... James Coburn and Rod Steiger and something like Duck, You Sucker, and yet it had this Italian director. And I mean, I was into films at that time, but I wasn't, I was more into like old Hollywood movies, because that's what my dad liked. And spaghetti westerns were kind of this odd bridge to something else, because they very much referenced old Hollywood, but they were something very new. So I just have this kind of general memory of spaghetti westerns without clearly defining moments between each film (laughs) so it's kind of this blur
5: and how about you mike I really lucked out because I, at age 19, I got the book deal to, to write Lee Van Cleef's biography. I was a 19-year-old college student in Alabama. Domestically, there was no way to see the big gun down on home video at the time. My only hope was between my, during my one-year writing period between 1995 and 1996, I just had to hope and pray that it screened on TV at some point during that period. And thank goodness, January 9th. 1996, you remember when cable American cable broadcaster TNT used to, like, for, like, Lee Van Cleef's birthday or John Wayne's birthday, they would show an appropriate movie? Well, they showed the big gun down at 2 a.m. on Lee Van Cleef's birthday, so I really lucked out. You were 19 when you got that book deal? Stephen Crane and Red Badge of Courage aside, I don't really recommend 19-year-olds get, you know, write books. Not professionally, their frontal lobe hasn't even developed yet. This is a very significant film to me because Lee Van Cleef, that book deal, that launched my career in film. And then years later, as a screenwriter, the other lead of the film, Tomas Milian, he signed letters of interest to appear in two westerns that Eric Zaldivar and I co-wrote. They never got produced, and then. Tomás left us in 2017, but it was a giant vote of confidence that he did that. And so, again, the two leads of this movie I have a connection to, and it's a very significant film to me.
2: I can't remember when I saw this. I think, though, when I did see it, it was probably maybe like a video search of Miami type of deal, or because it was definitely on VHS, and it was one of these things that was kind of cobbled together, because famously this film has multiple versions of it, and I think I saw the 110-minute version, which is, as far as I know, the longest version of it, and it was one of those, and I kind of revisited it last night, where you would go along with English dialogue, and then you would drop out into Italian dialogue for a while, then go back to English. But for me, I like it that way because then I get to see what's in one version versus what's in another. So it was very interesting to try to put my mind in that space where I'm watching it going, "Okay, so this wasn't in the version that Americans saw. That's interesting. And just to see how things were cut and to try to figure out how people were perceiving these characters in this American version versus the international version – I think that the American version was rather butchered, missing, what, 15 minutes of stuff? And really, any time that you miss even a frame of Lee Van Cleef, you're missing too much. And there's so much stuff, even from the beginning of this movie, that incredible opening scene where you've got the three guys coming up this mountain, and they're looking for their connection, and there's Lee Van Cleef just waiting for them. And they think at first that he's the connection, and then, no the connection is the guy that's hanging over there. Uh, I'm the guy that you thought was behind you. Here I am in front of you and I'll give you a fighting chance though. Here's three bullets for your guns. And I love the way he lines up these bullets on this log and you get that amazing shot of the three men with the three bullets right in front of them. So nice. And the movie just goes on from there, just being framed and shot so wonderfully.
0: Being Italian and Catholic, the number three and the Holy Trinity. And like, there's always Catholicism in these films in weird and twisted ways, I think. And that's part of, I think what I enjoy about them because they elevate what the American Westerns were. There's always this twin sense of like this weird Catholicism and this weird kind of operatic sensibility. I just, I just remember in Django, they had what were supposed to be the clan, And instead of the white hoods, they were all wearing these red hoods and scarves. It's like, that's so over the top. And it's like, why? Because it looks better. It looks more striking to be riding down the hill in those red hoods, as opposed to those bland white ones. Yeah, I always like, and you know, there's always somebody's getting crucified. But I I love that sense, (laughs) that sense of this... Tormented Catholicism that's somewhere lurking in these films that kind of just gives it an extra edge of, you know, those notions of redemption and sin and whatever.
5: Well, we should give a shout out to a guy named Franco Cleef. He was the one that cobbled together that, you know, back before it was commercially available in this country. He was the one that put together that longer version and it was available through the tape traders. I was living in LA at the time and Eddie Brandt's Saturday Matinee was a rental place and they had a certain behind the scene, behind the counter collection that you could, they couldn't commercially, uh, you know, rent you, but you could borrow at no cost. And so that's how I saw the Franco Cleef 110 minute version. I have to totally disagree. I, maybe it's my bias of having seen the 90-some-odd the minute cut first and you just fall in love with, you know, the first version you see is the one you tend to fall in love with. As much as I love spaghetti westerns, one of my least favorite things, and I know I'm in the minority, is the pageantry of gunfights. I just gravitate towards the realism and, you know, I just don't need to see a bunch of pageantry in the gunfights. So I, I prefer the—and the only way I'm able to get that cut, Grindhouse Leasing did an amazing four-disc Blu-ray set. But the only way I'm able to see the cut that I fell in love with, fortunately, I found the Japanese DVD, which has that cut.
2: I was watching that 110-minute cut on the Grindhouse release that you're talking about, and it is all dubbed in Italian. And so that was the thing. I was just like, no, 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 no. I want to hear Lee Van Cleef say as much with his own voice as I possibly can. And I don't care if everybody else is dubbed. You know, everybody else is dubbed anyway, whether they're being dubbed in Italian or whether they're being dubbed in English. So just give me that. So I ended up having to go back and watch the bootleg rather than watch the Grindhouse version. I mean, it's it's a gorgeous, gorgeous print. They did such a great job. Beth, you are talking about the, the, the trinity that comes up, and the one thing that always cracks me up is that Lee Van Cleef, famous for being in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, where I believe, and please correct me, that he is the bad. But when it came to advertising this movie, all over the place, it was Mr. Ugly is back, which, as an actor, I might be a little offended by. I'm not sure.
0: I know it gets confusing because of the way they list it on the poster and then in the movie. But yeah, because it got confused and then I got confused, like I'm not sure where the original is. But yes, I think he's supposed to be the bad and Eli Wallach is the ugly, which makes a lot more sense. But he's just angelized.
5: Back when I was writing the book, I went looking through the old newspaper microfilm. You know, I found the old newspaper ads and there's all, you know, Mr. Ugly comes to town. And most hilariously is that one market. One city, I can't remember where, St. Louis or somewhere, had a Mr. Ugly contest where, you know, you could win, I don't know, the ugliest guy or something, won free tickets or something. Predicated on this being totally inaccurate, that Van Cleef was the bad and not the ugly. It's just hilarious that they made such a hoopla. But MGM and United Artists were the main importers of spaghetti westerns as far as the studios went. But this was Columbia. And they made a big deal of it. And I found newspaper ads they brought it in in 68 or 69. It was made in, released in 66 in Italy, but they brought it over to America in 68 or 69. And I've seen newspaper ads all the way up to 73 where it was still playing in America.
2: Well, it's a really compelling film. And I really like the way that this whole film is set up that we have, you know, after this opening and after that incredible credit sequence, which has just personally, I like the version with lyrics, uh, even though the singer is a little over the top, let's say. Um, And my wife was just like, get this screeching harpy off of the television.
5: (laughs) I remember showing this film to my brother, and the title sequence comes up, and he says, I guess they couldn't afford that Morricone guy for this one. And I was like, this is one of his most celebrated soundtracks. What are you talking about?
2: Maybe I prefer the one without the the lyrics to the song, but definitely I don't mind uh, hearing them with the lyrics, even though...
0: Oh, no, the lyrics are great. (laughs) There's something about hearing those that is just, like, it just throws you into it, and yeah, I love them. But I love this whole
2: idea of Van Cleef going to this, uh, well, actually, even before we see him arrive at this party, that great tableau that we have of the other family that we're being introduced to, And that we get to see, you know, father, mother, daughter, son-in-law, and then over to the side is his bodyguard. And I absolutely love the actor that plays the bodyguard. We talked a little bit about him on the Sabata episode where he shows up. And even though he's in uh, the third Sabata film... They don't really play up as much in that film as they do in this film. Just how much, and this could just be me, but just how much he and Van Cleef look alike in some aspects. Maybe it's the haircut, maybe it's the nose, but when they are having their little confrontation later on in the film where they're talking about what it's like to be a gunfighter and he's really trying to impress Van Cleef of, like how scientific he is about his new holster and all these things, and that he always watches the eyes and not the hands. It really felt like it was almost a mirror image talking these two guys together.
5: The real look alike was in the bull scene. That's Romano Pupo. The only guy with a mustache but no beard in the bull scene is Romano Pupo, and he was Lee Van Cleef's stunt double. If you wonder why Romano Pupo is in so many Van Cleef films, that's why. And also in the bull scene at the Widow's Ranch, and I know we're jumping ahead. But also in that scene is Benito Stefanelli, and he was another big stunt coordinator. Not only stunt man, but stunt coordinator. And those guys naturally just got speaking parts in these spaghetti westerns, too. And really, that opening scene is where we get stuff set up. We have uh, Van Cleef at
2: this party. We've got this guy, Broxton, who's like, hey, you know, you should really run for Senate, and I'll buy your campaign, and I'll put up all this money. And basically... You'll be in my pocket once you become a senator, but I really want this to happen. And these two guys, the McCoy brothers, show up at this party, and they're like, hey, this girl was raped and murdered. And right away, there's a close-up on this son-in-law, and it's like, okay, something's not right. But luckily, it isn't too cam fisted the way that we're handed this. I mean, they do try to keep the mystery up a little bit through this film. I think it's only really on the second viewing or third viewing that you're like, oh, well, of course, that's why they did that close up. But otherwise, it was just like more of a reaction shot.
0: You don't really trust those brothers. I mean, just look at them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They're very natural red hair that they have.
0: They just don't look trustworthy.
2: (laughs) They, Yeah. No, they definitely don't. But yeah, they tell the story of how Cuchillo, this Mexican bandito, is the one that actually raped and murdered this girl. And now it's up to uh, Broxton's like, hey, this will really help with your campaign here, Corbett, if you go out and, and track this guy down. Basically just setting him up and, hey, you'll take care of this problem for me and everything will be absolutely fine. And yeah, rather than rather than get a whole posse together, we've got a one man posse right here, Sheriff. Jonathan Corbett will take care of this problem for us. And we quickly learn that Corbett maybe is a little outmatched by Cuchillo.
0: Even though this guy is offering him, I'm going to pay for your campaign and blah, blah, blah. You know that Corbett is not buying 100% into this because he says, I'm interested in progress. I'm not interested in your personal profit. And you know right from the beginning that this is a guy who is completely like his own and doesn't really care what anybody else thinks or wants. And he's kind of like, yeah, I'll go for this. But you know that that's not a contract that's binding to him, like that he's gonna go his own way if he decides that this guy doesn't fit what he thinks he wants. And so I I really like that, that they're almost talking at cross purposes where, you know, Braxton is saying stuff. And he's like, Oh, yeah, now I got this guy in my pocket, he's going to take care of my problems. And Corbett's kind of like, Yeah, I'm going to be doing my own thing. And if there are are motives and, you know, needs happen to cross, fine. But if they part ways, forget it. One of the things I really love about the film is it opens and you're in this Western setting and you feel like to me, I feel like I'm in. An Italian spaghetti western. And then you go to the plantation and suddenly you're like reminded like, Oh, wait a minute. We are supposed to be in America and the South. And the thing I love about these spaghetti westerns is they occupy this weird kind of surreal landscape of being Italian and American and someplace entirely different from both all at the same time. And it's, it's kind of bizarrely magical (laughs) in a way.
5: That scene is particularly surreal because there may be another Spaghetti Western expert that uh, knows better than I, but I can think of no other scene in a spaghetti western shot on a soundstage but meant to be an exterior. Sure, yeah, I'm sure they have shot, you know, saloon scenes and stuff on sound stages at Chinachita and stuff, but that is meant to be an exterior and it's shot on a sound stage and you know they've built a little garden and, and and stuff like that. I mean, I think it has that maybe distinction in all of spaghetti western cinema.
2: I'm so glad you said that because I was like, this looks like a soundstage, but I can't really tell for sure if it is because there were some shots where I was like, well, I don't know, that greenery looks like it's pretty real. But then at the same time, maybe they just dug up some trees and just planted them right there on the soundstage.
0: (laughs) But, you know, that also harkens back to these referencing American Westerns as well. It plays on so many kind of things in your cultural memory of, yeah, if you watched old american westerns from the 50s some of those were shot on sound stages including exteriors and they had a certain look to them
5: my vhs of the searchers you can actually it was matted improperly and you can actually see the soundstage lights at the top of the campfire scene
0: it just adds to that whole quality the unique quality of spaghetti westerns for me because they, they occupy, like I said, they just occupy this interesting space of not being any one thing and kind of crossing all these boundaries. And it's one of the things I really love about them.
5: And we're almost giving the filmmakers too much credit for all this stuff because, like, this is grinded out cinema. This is, you know, the film made without live sound and just ground out to, you know, the Italians. They didn't have TV until the late 70s, and they went to the movies like four times a week. They, did, they treated it like we treated TV, so they just had to grind out movies, and they were so much more prolific than Hollywood. In loving American Westerns and almost slavishly wanting to recreate them, they came out with something that was entirely different. They demented the American Western through their own specific type of machine and just cranked out some product that was totally different. But it, yeah, I don't even know how much was intentional.
0: I mean, it shows how smart they were, too, because there's this sense. Italy's coming out of the war and their, their industry being completely devastated and, and trying to like reboot the industry in the 50s and, and 60s. And you get this sense of like, okay, they've imported the American Western, they've reimagined it on their own terms, then exported it back out to America, and they've created this product that in Italy looks like a foreign film coming from America, and then to Americans – it's meant to look like an American film made in their own country. And yet it's got this different quality. So it just has these clever layers to it that are unintentional.
5: Another layer when the American revisionist movement starts aping the spaghetti westerns. Yeah, I mean, to have uh, Thomas Millian, who's what, uh, Cuban-American? I know
2: he studied with Strasbourg and he's playing this Mexican bandito, Cuchillo, who I like that we don't get to know him very well at First, and that he's very much just this uh we we talk a little bit in uh, a bullet for the general about the trickster character from Italy, and he's very much this trickster character where he, I mean it is honestly like a cartoon at times, the very first time that Corbett confronts Cuccio when Cuccio's getting a, a shave. And Corbett goes over, and he's about to apprehend him, and this little guy in a uh, sombrero just walks past, and he's just like, you know, hey, how's it going, and and moves past, and he's supposed to be the barber, but no, it's actually the barber in the chair, and it's just this kind of really impossible-to-have-been-done type of thing, other than if it was Bugs Bunny doing it. And I was just like, yeah, that works really well, and Cuccio, throughout so much of this, is basically a cartoon character quite a bit of the time.
0: Well, and I love the contrast that you get between Millian and, and Van Cleef because Van Cleef is so kind of still and laconic and, bar- you know, barely moves. And, you know, Millian is just running circles around him and bouncing off of walls. And part of what makes the film so enjoyable is that physical contrast between the two of them.
5: When you think about it, Lee Van Cleef gets the info that Cochillo is in the arbor's chair. He gets the info from an old man. And the old man has been slashed in the face. Now, the movie wants you to gradually be like kachio and gradually, you know, shift your opinion on him and think. But when you watch it multiple times, you're like, hey, this guy still is slashing old men in the face. Also, when Lee Van Cleef in a later scene gets shot, by the young Mormon girl, Cachillo is just laughing maniacally, you know, thinking that Van Cleef has been killed. This is the time that the audience is supposed to th- still think that uh, Cachillo is just an absolute cretin. But, you know, again, on multiple viewings, he's still doing these things. Yeah, that whole scene
2: with the Mormon clan is very, very interesting. And I, I really like how they're kind of pulling the wall over our eyes when it comes to him getting the information, Corbett getting the information that Cuccio is down by the, the river with this 13-year-old girl. So he immediately just jumps to like, oh my God, she's going to get raped and murdered and just um, bolts out there. And that and the way that they play the scene, the way that Cuchillo is just like, hey, come on in the water, hey, and he's just really like extra pervy with this 13-year-old girl, I really like how they're manipulating us with that. And then, then I also really like the payoff to that scene, which is when the Mormon guy's like, oh, no, this is my daughter. This is my fourth wife. That's nice. That's really good.
0: Yeah, I thought that was a great payoff.
2: Cuccio manages to get him shot by the Mormon girl. I mean, Lee Van Cleef just gets abused constantly through this film. I mean, I compared him to Bugs Bunny, but it's almost Tom and Jerry-esque with how often we think that uh, Tom's just about to catch Jerry and ends up with a... Uh, head f- shaped like a frying pan you know though i guess cuchillo kind of gets it back a little bit in that absolutely bizarre scene when he goes to the woman's ranch and this woman who's like a a spider in a web and has or more like i think they call her a queen bee and she's got all of her drones outside and she just looks through a window at all the drones and what they're doing and the way that they fight and play i mean it's it's really kind of twisted. It's like all of these guys just doing all of these things to impress her and hopefully end up being the one that spends the night in her bed. And wow, what a, a an amazing sequence this is.
5: You know, there's a lot of gothic touches in Spaghetti Westerns, and this would be the gothic touch and The Big Gun Down, the lone gothic touch, I guess. Very glad that Lee Van Cleef did not bed down with Susan Scott or Naives Navarro's character, because uh, we would have just hated him when he coldly left at the end of that sequence. But would have actually understood i think but i'm still glad that he he recognized what was going on
0: well and it's also an interesting female character that you get because so often uh, i mean a lot of these women uh, you know they end up getting raped or killed or just hanging on to a, a male character but you know she's at least kind of she's a little like a femme fatale character where she's she's kind of controlling her own world without a whole lot of morality going on. But she's at least got a certain amount of control and is manipulating people in a way that a lot of the other female characters don't get to do. But in the end, she's still left on her knees begging for some man to stay <laughs> and protect her.
2: And the stunt work that goes on when Cuccio, in quotes, is getting gored by that bull is just Incredible. I mean, it looks like it really hurt whoever that was that was getting tossed around by that bull as a Cuchillo is trying to impress the woman. That was really remarkable. And I really like, too, when Van Cleef shows up and he's talking with her, the cross cutting between his conversation with her and and then Cuccio down in the pig shit and mud with all of the guys around him, and him just trying to turn the situation around, completely helpless, no knives, no guns, but he just uses his words and tries to set these guys against one another, and then eventually against Van Cleef, and manages to hold the whole situation. And then how Cuccio even does a little bit of a double-cross, too, when Corbett's about to walk out the door and he catches his eyes and it's just like, no, 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 you know, there's other guys around here with guns. And really, it's, again, Cuccio just playing the situation so that he can say the he's going around the back and instead just jumps on a horse and off he goes.
5: Yeah, he even reasons that out with Van Cleef in a later scene verbally. But uh, yeah, as Van Cleef pointed out, he the two parties needed to be tied up with each other for Cuccio to escape. So yeah, he... He did his trickster bit of business.
0: Yeah, it's so much fun to see him manipulate people and and spin the situation in his favor. And it's part of the tension, the fun tension of the film is how does he get out of each of these things? Throughout the I mean, throughout all three of these films, there's constantly moments where like, hmm, how's he going to get out of that prison? Oh, how is he going to get out of that guy shooting him right there? (laughs) And then he always manages.
5: By all three, you mean this film, the sequel, Run Man Run, and then the, the other one that's considered face part of the, the,
0: the. Yeah. It's just
5: the, is, his political trilogy, as it's sometimes called. Yeah. Yeah. Sergio Solima, you know, he just loved the idea, uneasy partnership between an establishment figure and a criminal. Very clear who that is. And, uh, and. Big Gundown, that's an ex-lawman Corbett and Cuchillo. In a Eurocrime movie called Revolver, it's a prison warden and, a, and again, a criminal. And, uh, yeah, Run, Man, Run, it's in Cuchillo, and there's a bounty hunter figure, not as strong a presence as Lee Van Cleef. But then in Face to Face, it's a school teacher and bandit leader. So, yeah, just in love with these ideas of these establishment figures and anti-establishment figures having to form an uneasy alliance.
2: Yeah, having just seen all the Sabata films, I was reminded by that trope of the white northern type person and then the uh, more gregarious uh, Mexican character. And, and usually the Mexican character, much like in this, is treated unfairly because they're Mexican. And just, there's that, that racism that goes through the film. And does our character address that? Does he treat the other character with respect? is corbett eventually does he come around and treat cuchillo with respect yes but it takes a long time for that and really he needs to still be in power and, and you know, we do realize that there were situations that we thought cuchillo had the upper hand but really corbett knew exactly what was going on and used that to try to manipulate it more but it was really one of those like who's got the upper hand in this situation and i love that That kind of back and forth that these two characters have, and that they're both such strong leads that it really feels like this film is equally shared by the two, even though, you know, you have. Uh, Mr. Ugly all over the posters in America, but in other countries, you'd see both of their faces on the poster. And it's like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. It is like face-to-face where you to have the two characters like in the opening credits like right next to each other. It very much feels like these two gentlemen share the screen equally.
0: It's the character arc that Corbett has, too, because part of the reason why He doesn't always seem in control early on is because he's starting to doubt the reason that's prompting him to pursue this guy and arrest him is he's having these doubts that, you know, I'm not sure I believe that guy. And maybe there's something else I should be thinking about. And so, you know, that's part of why that that shift in power is also interesting, because we later find out that part of the reason why he doesn't kill him right away or why he doesn't you know, isn't a little more forceful in apprehending this, because he's he's kind of having some doubts.
5: Yeah, this film really sets a precedent for the next two years for Lee Van Cleef, because most times in spaghetti westerns, Hero is basically an elemental force. Think Lee Van Lenis would rather, in Fistful of Dollars, or any of the Dollars films. He breezes into town, he's unchangeable, he's unshakable, he's unflappable, but, you know, outside of accomplishing a mission during the film's runtime, he doesn't change. Lee Van Cleef was very different in a lot of his roles. We might be tempted to think that that began with For a Few Dollars More, because in For a Few Dollars More, it seems like he's just a purely mercenary bounty hunter. And By the end of the movie, he's revealed that he's on a much more personal mission. But that's just really a shift in the audience understanding and perception of the character. Here, he actually undergoes a change. He begins the film naive about law and order. He begins a film kind of overzealous about law and order. But by the end of the film, his eyes have been opened. He's much more world weary about the way the world works. He's much more a realist. Next year, he would do Death Rides a Horse, where he begins on what seems like a just a personal, bitter quest of revenge and by the end of the film he has shifted over and there's a younger guy who's after the same baddies he helps this younger guy in a much more righteous quest of revenge then the next year beyond the law lee van cleef Begins the movie not only as a criminal, but an absolute goofball. I mean, the guy is just goofy. I don't... Like, I fast forward for the first two-thirds of the movie when I watch that film. And by the end of the the film, he's not only a sheriff, but he's also his stoic hero character. That's what I term... These three films, they always end up with Van Cleef as a stoic hero. He starts off the movie as either less stoic or less heroic, but then ends up the stoic hero in the end of all three. I really love a movie called The Grand Duel, where it's clear that Van Cleef's character has made this change... But it happens in the backstory, it happens in the exposition, the has already occurred before the movie. So we get to spend the whole time, it's very realistic that this character would have evolved, but we don't actually have to watch the evolution. You raise an interesting point, Mike, but really, half the film, Big Gundown, occurs in Mexico. So I don't know that Lee Van Cleef, you know, has big, bad, evil, white man power over Cachillo down in Mexico. I think the main point is that Cachillo is poor and he stood with Juarez. They allude to a couple of times that he stood with the revolutionaries and it was a failed revolution so it made him just especially vulnerable having a target pinned on him.
0: Well, you get a number of references from the Mexican law enforcement of, you know, uh, whether you're Juarez's dogs or an American, like, I don't care if you guys want to fight it out between the two of you. Just kind of like, don't bother me, but you're like, I don't care about either of you. I don't like either of you. And kill each other if you want. Guccio,
2: for so much of this film, is one step ahead. And it almost seems like he's rubbing it into Corbett's face. Like when Corbett goes to see a prostitute and his sheriff star is on the prostitute's garter. And it's like, oh, my God, that's just amazing. But when he goes to Corbett goes to a monastery and Guccio had been there. And there's this uh, man called Brother Smith and Wesson. And I really like the scene with those two together and this whole idea of, you know, if you cross that line, you're going a step too far. Like crossing the line as far as going to Mexico and crossing that line as to continuing to pursue Cuchillo. If you do that, you will not be able to come back from that. And I really appreciate that little exchange that these two characters have. And yeah, once he makes that transition and goes to Mexico, I mean, really, the film starts to really change there, especially because that's what tips off Broxton to bring he and, and his clan and the baron, the Austrian baron, down to Mexico. And that's really what sends up a big red flag for corbett which is just like why are you doing why are you coming down here with all of this stuff you know like this isn't right and i think that's really what starts to fuel that fire even more than it might have been fueled before that things aren't right here
5: that that scene did have an english dub the monk scene but it's not in the theatrical cut that i first became aware with so that must have been like dubbed for like the uk or something like that Grindhouse did put it into their expanded theatrical cut. That's what they called it. So it's just not even a film I'm seen. I'm that familiar with because I watched the the version I fell in love with.
0: Well, and again, that goes back to that Catholicism. You've got, you know, a priest talking talking to him about you don't have a right to cross this border and kind of giving him this this sense of, you know, there's this this morality going on that you have to kind of pay attention to and. And then that that monk, that priest is, you know, an interesting character, too, because he obviously has a backstory to himself as well. And I think that, you know, part of the notion I like there is there is this sense of you can lead any kind of life and you can end up with some sort of redemption. So it's almost like he's telling him, hey, you know, you can cross that line if you want to, but there's another choice you can make for maybe – a better more moral life or you know a, a a better way to better path to take and again i think that's interesting that they emphasize those kind of choices within these films
5: mike you were earlier talking about the two guys being the two leads being shared true honest shared leads i guess i don't know what would you think if if i had to estimate i would say it was probably 60 percent of the scenes or screen time was from van cleef's point of view and about 40 was from Cachillo's point of view is that about how you guys, or do you think it's 50 50?
2: I think it's probably more 60 40. It might even be 55 uh, 35, because there's also that moment where we break from the two characters and we're privy to things that neither of them are, where we have Broxton talking to his daughter and talking to, is it Shem or Shemp?
5: I kept, kept writing Shemp in my notes. I think it's Shep, right? Shep is in Shep Gordon, maybe? I think. There you
2: go. And that is very interesting
5: that it's just like,
2: hey, you know, this isn't a marriage. This is a a land transaction. This is is a deal for you to be down payment, basically, on this idea of a railroad and this idea of the land that I need to own. So when we shift away from those two guys, I mean, we're very much in a privileged spot. And then also getting to see Shep really eyeing
5: that one servant girl he does
0: more than i yeah (sighs) he lays some hands on her yeah
5: for people who i well i guess everybody's seen it or you've encouraged everybody to seen it see it by but for a common frame of reference and i don't mean this to be a controversial or artisan comment but for a common frame or modern frame of reference he's kind of a uh, hunter biden type character because he is into forbidden pleasures and it is coming at the liability of his powerful father that's that's how I think about Shep now.
0: Powerful father-in-law, because that father he he wants to get rid of that son-in-law. <laughs> He's like, man, your baggage.
5: <laughs> but uh, the, Shep's the father is powerful too, right? The, yeah, but yeah, yeah, both we don't see him. One, one right? well, we see him at the wedding. I think one oh, one yeah, has yeah. the land, and one is building the railroad. Uh, isn't that the the marriage of convenience there? And then when he goes down to Mexico, he's got the other guy who he's
2: making the deal with so that the railroad can go through to Mexico. Is that correct? Yeah. The guy
5: with the really incredibly tall sombrero it's just like, are you
2: making up for something with that?
5: The balance of screen time between the guys, that's that's what makes the movie work for me. And that's why I think Run, Man, Run, the sequel is, you know, just kind of a weaker film because that movie is like, I don't know, like 85, 15 in favor of Cachillo. And, you know, it's not that it's too much Cachillo. It's just, there's not a strong balance for him. And it just feels kind of, instead of feeling like a chase movie, like this movie does, even though technically Run Man Run is a chase movie, that feels more like a road movie. It feels like, you know, a road movie, proto-road movie without cars because Cachillo is just encountering fun people along the way and stuff.
0: And a little bromance going.
2: Well, everything in this movie feels like it's so perfectly together. I mean... Cuccio has a little musical motif to him. The Baron has the Fur Elise that he's playing on the piano, and that comes back later. And then, you know, Corbett's got his own theme, and then when they're chasing Cuccio through the cane fields, we hear Cuccio's theme mixed with the other theme, and then when the, we finally get to the big gun-down of the title towards the end, we even get Fur Elise coming back when it's uh, the Baron about to do his thing, and it's just like, this is really nice So it really feels like they put a lot of time, a lot of energy into this. And I know I I read uh, Alex Cox's uh, review of the film and his one complaint. Well, actually he had two complaints. One was the singer for the uh, theme song. And maybe, especially when she comes back right at the very, very end when uh, Cuchillo's saying what, never, never. And then, then she comes back in like really super loud that. And then, um, That the gunfight between the Baron and Corbett takes a little less time than maybe it should. Maybe it should have been built up a little bit more, especially when he's talking about the importance of the eyes. And Cox was just like, let's get some of those good, the bad, and the ugly close-ups in there, because that would be really good. But Salima, I don't think that he shoots that way. He didn't have those big face moments nearly as much as a of the other Sergio or one of the other two big Sergios of Leone
0: well and maybe that's also a bit of the irony of it because obviously the Baron is not as good I mean from our point of view I mean we side with van cleef and we think that he would be the better gunfighter in that situation and that the Baron is you know trying to do this scientific thing and figuring out how to outsmart the other guy with this special holster and i'm gonna figure this out and lee van cleef is just like yeah no just do it like you just i mean there's even a point when when the baron like pulls the gun on him to show how fast he can and he barely even flinches in a reaction and you know it's just a moment where you're going like he seems to have more mastery of this kind of situation than the baron does
5: yeah, Van Cleef, early on in that uh, wedding scene, establishes—and I this is the kind of stuff I like because I'm attracted to the real—I'm attracted to masculine cinema, traditional masculinity in cinema— I don't like hyper-macho bullshit. And so when the Baron is bragging about all his gunplay skills and stuff, and Lee Van Cleef like, I stopped playing with guns when I was a boy at 12. You know, that, that's the kind of stuff I dig. Is like, uh, you know, you use a gun as a tool, but you don't, you know, fetishize it and stuff, as the Baron clearly did. I think all these gun these gunfights in these spaghetti westerns, they were all looking for novelty. And I think the novelty in the Lee Van Cleef one is the fact that he offs his part, uh, his dueling partner while he's rolling down. Oh, I think that's great. As average, as he's, you know, rolling down and repeatedly facing the Baron, he gets off shot after shot and takes out his enemy. I think that was the novelty or the gimmick there. And if you think about it, you know, Clint Eastwood was like a ringmaster of the final duel and for a few dollars more, which was between Lee Van Cleef and Jean marie Volante. In this one, Lee Van Cleef was like the ringmaster between Cachillo and Shep. And, in, and, in, the penultimate gun duel in this film.
0: Well, and what I like about that duel with the Baron, too, is, you know, the Baron's kind of focusing on this idea of, like, oh, I can draw faster than you. And Van Cleef's thinking, I just need to kill you. And if it takes two bullets or three or from a standing position, or rolling down the hill, it doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't have to look good, or, you know, whatever. It just, I just need to be effective in what I'm doing. And I don't have to do the math to figure that out. I'm just going, like, I'm just going to take you out. And there's a very kind of just, like, no-nonsense efficiency to the way he does it, as opposed to this Baron's kind of...
2: Well, the Baron even says... That speed makes up for accuracy, and he ends up shooting Van Cleef, but he shoots him in the shoulder. So it's like, yeah, no, you—you you missed. Your
5: accuracy is what cost you your life, sir. And considering that Van Cleef's already been shot in the shoulder earlier in this film, yes. maybe it went past right through the same wound, <laughs> right? Maybe Van Cleef barely <laughs> even felt it. Another couple of things about the sequence leading up to the climax. You know, I'm not into over-analysis of films or overly deconstructing them. But what they call the cane field, that kind of looks like reeds to me. That doesn't look like proper. It looks almost like wheat. But I do notice they call it cane fields. And, you know, you think about where is cane. It's not even really in, in the United States properly, but it is in Cuba. And who comes from Cuba? Well, Tomas Milian, the guy who's supposed to be. So I did think of it. that was coincidental. Also... The piece of music that's kind of become famous from this, a piece of instrumental music that goes, you know, that's played during that sequence. And a few years ago, I rewatched Wolfgang Peterson's *In the Line of Fire*, starring Clint Eastwood, scored by Ennio Morricone. And what was the title theme of that? It's a, you know, it's a discipline or a medium that allows for some recycling. And Morricone certainly did it there. But you know, it's another tie between Van Cleef and Eastwood.
2: Yeah, I've had a couple of folks point out like, oh, yeah, he was pretty much recycling himself here, here and here and send over little clips of stuff. And it's like, "Okay, yeah, you know, it's not as bad as James Horner for me. So I'm okay with that. And plus the man put together, what, 100 scores easily. I mean, pretty much everything that I've watched this month, um, with maybe the exception of. One film, uh, The Bullet for the General, I think was not scored by him, though there was musical supervision by Morricone. And there's one point where I was just like, wow, this sounds like Morricone. Like maybe he just stepped in here and did this. But for the most part, I mean, he is the soundtrack of Spaghetti Westerns.
5: Maybe on the Grindhouse DVD... Sergio Solima said something like, my only complaint with Ennio Morricone is he, may, he scored too many movies.
0: No, there's no such thing as him scoring too many movies. Well, and if you're a little tone deaf like me, you can't recognize that music is being reused because it kind of just goes right over my head. Although I do think it, the theme song is played at that plantation party, right? In the background? Okay, because I'm not very good at d- at identifying music, and I'm going like, yeah,
5: that. But that was very clever. I thought that was a great touch. I thought that was the, the instrument. It worked with the instrumentation, too. Yeah, that was
2: very, very nice. And yeah, that chase of, uh, after they get through the the quote-unquote cane fields, the chase of Cuchillo through those landscapes, those incredible landscapes. And there's a lot of times where he's in the foreground, and the pursuers, and they're are in the background and he'll be hiding like in a cubby or, you know, just like a rock formation. And it's almost like he's part of the landscape. And I really kind of appreciated the way that they were shooting that as well, where it's just like, again, we're privileged. We get to see him as part of this land. And really he is part of this land. Cause by this point we're in Mexico and this is his home turf. And the rest of the people are so small and so ineffectual as they're trying to find him through this giant landscape.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes him seem like he knows the land better, way better than they do. And he knows where to go and where to hide and how to use everything in his environment to his advantage. And they don't.
5: If you want to see a whole wall-to-wall film of that, watch the Spaghetti Western, Chato's Land, Michael winter film with Charles Bronson. Yeah, a lot of people say it's a Vietnam allegory.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it is. I can see that.
5: You know, before I was ever even able to see this film, your only way to learn about these movies was back in the 90s. That is, pre-internet 90s was through, you know, the various books that have been made on spaghetti westerns. And I can't remember if it was Chris Frailing or, you know, one of these books. But it said that the chase through the cane field was every bit as powerful and beautiful as the Ecstasy of Gold sequence in Good, Bad and the Ugly. And when I saw it, it was like, the music's great and all. But yeah, just it's it's... Yeah, I think you were right, Mike. I think once he gets out of the canes and he's, you know, in the rockier terrain, I think that's, you know, more powerful imagery.
0: Well, I think he's a very different filmmaker from Leone and he's much – I mean, he has a background or he had a background in documentary filmmaking and I just don't think he had the same kind of visual flourishes. He had really a great sense of framing and and using images, but not that same kind of – Flourish that, that Leone had that kind of really epic grandeur that he had. It, it's a different style. So yeah, I think, the, I think the two scenes are radically different, uh, and have a different impact. But, you know, The Ecstasy of Gold one is much more of this kind of dizzying, heady rush.
5: Yeah, it, it almost exists for its own sake.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'd seen the film many times, but for the first time I saw it at the Cinema Dome you know, in the huge screen, and that scene played so much differently. I mean, it was like you physically get dizzy and high off of watching it on such a huge screen. It was wonderful.
2: Well, when I think about Leone, I do always think about those close-ups, but I think about the way that he would use those and pepper them in, or just change a shot suddenly. Like, there's a – I think, is it – I think it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like, we see the landscape and just this wide-open vista, and then a gunfighter comes in, like, from the side and turns right towards us, and so suddenly we're in extreme close-up, but it was all one shot, and it's just like, wow, that's amazing. So we've gone from the vista of the land to the vista of this man's face, and it's just like okay and you know you don't see the bottom of the chin you don't see the top of the head because you're just getting that wide frame and screen frame of this man's face and it's just really breathtaking but yeah it's not you're not necessarily getting that but i'm not saying that salima can't handle a camera because he definitely can and he keeps everything going with this
0: yeah it's just a different style you know again i think it's more about his framing I hate to use it, but the mise en scene where, you know, it's just how everything's placed in the frame is really exciting and interesting. And Leone just has much more of a flamboyance kind of to it. And it's just two different styles to me. I mean, I love them both.
5: To really nerd out, that guy who abruptly comes in a frame is Al Mulock. He is one of four Spaghetti Western actors, I can name off my, uh, count on my fingers, that uh, committed suicide. Uh, he actually committed suicide on the set of Once Upon a Time in the West. In his wardrobe, he defenestrated himself and, and died. I look at the Italians and how these guys could basically work as much as they want. They were in one movie, it becomes a hit or even a moderate hit or they just go on from film to film and film and you know, filmmaking is such a desperate scramble now which is just demoralizes you. And I look at these guys and it's like, why are y'all you killing yourselves? What do you got to be sad about? You you know made doing the most glamorous thing possible was a living.
2: Yeah, I know uh, we talked about uh, Frank Wolf when we were talking about The Great Silence, and it's like, oh, wow, I can't believe that he killed himself just a few years after that and after Once Upon a Time in the West. And it's like, again, yeah, you had everything going for you. You were all over the place. You're an American actor in these spaghetti westerns, and you're able to dub your own voice, and we can hear you And he's narrating documentaries and things. It's like, oh, man. I mean, we're going to talk about a lot more familiar faces as we talk about Run Man Run and Face to Face because it really feels like Salima really liked certain actors and he would come back to them time and again. And it's kind of a a reunion of sorts as we go through the rest of these films. So let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages
1: sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons
2: there's got to be a better way
1: now there is with good job brain an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun i just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now i can never shake that mental image thanks good job brain Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast.
3: Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by.
1: Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zara, and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at FatherMalone.com and on iTunes.
3: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode That's dot forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year, at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
2: And we are talking about the Big Gun Down, and we are talking more about Run Man Run, which is not only the name of one of the uh, songs from the Big Gun Down, but also the name of the sequel, which came two years later. Which brings back Cuccio, though unfortunately it doesn't bring back Jonathan Corbett. And Mike, you touched a little bit on this before, and I definitely agree with you as far as it being so much Cuccio, not enough of the other characters, and. With the Big Gundown, I felt like there was really a lot of forward momentum and we get some of that forward momentum here, but it feels like it's just a little bit more of a sluggish film than the Big Gundown was.
5: Well, and also way more comedic, just and I don't think that Tomas is playing the character any more comedically. I think just by virtue of having him on screen more, I think it feels like a more comedic film. And it just doesn't work for me as well. It's you know, it's an enjoyable film. It is nowhere near the classic that Big Gundown is.
0: Personally, I miss the contrast between Van Cleef and Millian because, again, you've got the stillness of one playing off the kind of antics of the other. And seeing having them together is just a perfect balance in the film. And you don't have that same sort of thing going here because he's kind of jumping from character to character through this. And it does feel on a certain level that this is kind of paralleling a lot of what's going on in the good, the bad and the ugly on a much smaller scale, but there's this, you know, looking for gold and just the same kind of sensibility that it feels, this one feels less fresh and original to me. Whereas face to face and uh, big gun down, I felt like I, I felt more engaged by them.
2: I mean, there's some good comedy at the beginning when he's going through this town that looks like it's abandoned and he takes some food and he comes out this other door and then he's right there by a firing line. The title Run Man Run is not a mistake because he is running through so much of this, whether it be him running away from this firing squad or he's in town and has to get from one place to another and uh, um, he has managed to uh, win a bet and uh, is running away from there and these so Soldiers are just like hey why are you running It felt very contemporary <laughs> contemporary hey come back here i want to kill you because you're running away from me there's that uh i guess he was a former sheriff now he's a bounty hunter so it's he's kind
5: of the corbett total corbett stand-in you wonder if like they couldn't they couldn't get van cleef back and so they gave him a new character name or something and minimized the screen time too
2: Really minimize the screen time. The the guy like there were a few times where I was like, wait, is that the same guy? And it is, but it was just like, oh, okay. um He just did not feel like he was there. And then after a while, too, it almost feels like there's too many people that are all involved in this. And it, at the end of the day, it becomes you know you talked about it being a road movie, and it's one of these like go find the giant W type of a road movie where it's all of these people all converging on this town to find this treasure. And the treasure in this case, it's interesting because it is going to fuel the revolution. But then when it comes to the revolution, it's like you have all of these different players in there who's sincere, who's not, who just wants to get rich off of this thing. And it really, it becomes a little muddled just because there are so many people that are all desperate to get to the town, get the gold and get theirs and, you know, fuck everybody else.
0: The other two spaghetti westerns he did, I feel like the politics in Face to Face are more developed and interesting and have has a, a much richer quality and the kind of pure kind of western tropes are better in Big Gun Down and then this one is kind of straddling both. It's kind of this finding the gold. It's kind of about revolutionaries. It's kind of about, you know, these Western tropes. And it doesn't quite settle in any one way or develop any one of those things to their best potential. So it just feels kind of a little sprawled that, you know, if he took a little more time, maybe or something like it felt like it was done quickly and not quite as thought out as the other two, because the other two felt much more crafted, well crafted.
2: Face-to-face, I'm so glad that you introduced me to that film, Mike, because I really wasn't familiar with it, and um, I'm not as familiar with Salima's work as I probably should be. But yeah, I was very impressed by that, especially having just seen A Bullet for the General, so seeing Gian Maria Valente in that, where he is... Not necessarily playing the the, the the Ramon role, but he looks much more like Ramon from um Fistful of Dollars. But in this he's got the he starts off with the short hair and there's no facial hair whatsoever and it's that different style of Valente that I really hadn't experienced before. And seeing the way that he transforms once he goes west and How it starts off as like a fish out of water story, and then it changes into another story. And I just yeah, really like the way that that one was paced and plotted, and it felt like it was really well put together. And that contrast between he and Thomas Millian just really worked so well. And to see those two powerhouses of spaghetti Westerns playing off of each other, and then even adding in William Berger, who we were just talking about a few weeks ago, who played Banjo in the uh, first uh, Sabata film, playing a completely different role. I mean, there are a lot of just uh, incredible scenes in face-to-face.
5: Yeah, I talk about the uneasy alliances uh, between establishment and anti-establishment characters in Sergio Solima films, but this is the only one where like they truly flip-flop you know, because the Jean-Marie Vellante teacher character becomes more of a bandit than the Tom- Tomas Million Beauregard character. Uh, and speaking of people you also saw in Tabata, blonde-haired actor Linda Veras was also in Run, Man, Run in a very sizable role. And then small part in Face to Face, such a small part, you almost kind of wonder what she was doing there. But check me, double check me, make sure I'm not wrong. But I think that that was Sergio Solimo's wife for a while.
2: There's the moment in Run Man Run when Kuchio comes into a bar, and I think that's probably like my favorite part of the film, is because he comes in, he sees it's pretty early on, so he sees the um, Lee Van Cleef standing in there, and he thinks, "Oh, they're after me," and then he's actually there after another guy. And that guy ends up, again, being in face-to-face. He's kind of this blonde guy. He looks a little bit like Mark Pellegrino. And I really like him. And then I like that there's yet another gunman in there. And that Cuccio can see him through a mirror. And that he throws this knife, breaks the mirror, and causes all of this gunfire to happen. I really enjoyed that. But I just didn't get enough of that. Because it felt like that scene was so well put together. And then through the rest of the movie, I'm just like... Yeah, okay. This is all right, you know, but it didn't grab me like face to face and like the big gun down.
0: That scene was so much fun. Milion is is orchestrating a lot of what's going on there. I mean, he makes the small bet, knowing, you know, figuring who's going to win and then kind of keeping his eye on what's going on in the entire place and it's fun.
2: Makes the bet with a stolen
0: stolen money. Coin.
2: And then he sees that pile of money that he stole it from, and he's like, I'm thinking, oh, he's just going to steal the rest of it. But no, instead, he actually gives back the coin because he made the rest of the money. I was like, oh, that's nice. That was very nice. (laughs) And I like that his wife was an important character, the Kachio wife character, who we saw in the previous film, played by a different actress.
5: Different actors and different character name. It's a stickler for continuity that was so disappointing to see, but...
0: Maybe he's a bit of a Mormon, and he had a couple of them. He learned from the Mormons.
5: The Mormons rubbed off on him. Yeah, so Chelo Alonso played the wife in the sequel, and she only acted for a few more years after Run, Man, Run. And I looked up, I don't know anything about the actress who played Rosita in The Big Gundown, but yeah, she only acted for a couple years prior. So she made, Rosita actress may have already been out of the biz by the time Run, Man, Run. Oh, and one more. Okay, you want to get really nerdy with trivia. You correctly said that "Run Man Run" was a soundtrack cue, the title of a soundtrack cue in Big Gundown, and kind of influenced the name of the sequel. Well, "La Reza de Conte," which is the name of the Big Gundown in Italian, that was the name of a soundtrack cue, and for a few dollars more. That's right.
2: Yeah, I've actually heard people compare the song of "The Ecstasy of Gold" to the theme from. Um, the big gun down, I'm like, well, I can kind of hear it, but it's not nearly as striking as some other cues where I'm just like, oh yeah, those are the same cues, definitely. But uh, to me, those two songs can stand on their own very strongly, and they're already incredible, the way that Morricone is doing them, but then to hear them orchestrated differently by other artists, it's like, oh wow, this song can really stand up, because other people can use it and abuse it, and it, it, it won't fade by uh, how powerful it is.
5: Big Gun Down is just, you know, one of the, even though it's a lesser known film than the Dollars films, it's just, you know, one of the high watermarks of Morricone's career.
2: Well, and then uh, John Zorn used it as the title of one of his his albums where he actually does, it's not really a cover of the Big Gun Down. It's almost like a a an interpretation of the sounds of the big gun down it's i want to say it's like a seven minute track and it has bits of the soundtrack there's even a little bit of free release in there and then the other parts of it i think the whole big gun down album that he did was all uh more coney songs but with that one it is the least like a cover and it's much more of like a I hate to use this term, but like a tone poem um, dedicated to the Big Gun Down Sun track.
5: Well, he's the he's the free jazz guy, right? John Zorn? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so I, I wouldn't expect him to do any standard cover, but some of the some of the tracks are standard covers. Yeah, like his cover
2: of uh, the Battle of Algiers is very similar. Uh, there's a few others as well where it's just like, okay, yeah. It's like I'd say that first track is very misleading because the rest of the tracks on the album are much more straight-ahead covers of Morcone stuff.
5: Well, this is going to sound very pejorative, but I thought that guy was just noise, man. What's noise to some is art to others, you know. There's not a whole lot I want to
2: talk about, Run, Man, Run, because even like as I was watching the film, I was like, okay, yeah, this happened, and then this happened, and I just kind of ran out of steam towards the end. I was like, yeah, this is playing out pretty much the way that I expected it to.
0: Well, I do want to point out that a lot of these spaghetti westerns have some very interesting forms of torture. And this one had the crazy putting them on a windmill, which also made me think of Don Quixote. And then there's dynamite in his mouth is another one. And then there were a few other ones, too. I can't remember. And and then, like, the soldier tied to a stake with a sign on him. I mean, there's these odd kind of brutal, you know, implicitly brutal scenes. And, yeah, the windmill one was crazy.
5: What what was the nationality of the guys who caught up to him at the windmill? I, can't, I forget. They were Weren French. They, French? Okay.
0: they were supposed to be French, I think.
5: That's just
2: like a line of dialogue where I was like, "Did they just say that they're French?" Yes. And-
0: <laughs> I think you. I think we were supposed to tell by the way they were dressed because they were like a little frillier than the others. Yeah, nationality is always a strange thing in, in spaghetti westerns, you know, because there's so many different nationalities of the cast. And then, you know, such an oddity of where things were shot and then where they were supposed to be. And, you know, there's a level of confusion that's...
5: Well, Mike, if you just saw Return of Sabata and The Big Gun Down recently, you've seen your share of redheaded Italians, haven't you? Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, those McCoy brothers. Then you've got the languages that they're speaking. There was even a moment, Beth, I think, where one person spoke to another in Italian and then, you know, it, it, the whole movie that I saw was in Italian. And then the person was like, what did they say? And I'm like, well, of course you know what they said. They're speaking the same language that you spoke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember, this is a film I love, but the language issue is is kind of weird to me, is the Richard Lester's Three Musketeers. So, it's all over the place. You've got, you know, an American, uh, Charlton Heston, playing the French Richelieu. You've got British actors playing the French, uh, musketeers. But there's a point at which the musketeers come to rescue the Queen's honor and Buckingham is there and he says something in English. And then the four musketeers look at each other and say like, he sounds British. And you're like, wait, you all sound British. But for some reason, Richard Lester manages to pull that film off. It's like one of those examples of like, that was completely wrong. All the accents were wrong. I totally bought into it, but sometimes spaghetti westerns are like this too, where it's like people are speaking and, and then suddenly they're referencing that you're American and you're not. And you're like, Oh, but they all sound the same. The one thing that I thought was kind of interesting. And, and again, it's not nearly as well developed in this as in face to face, but there, there, there is a reflection of Salima's own politics that are coming through in this, in this sense of the revolution. And, you know, there's a couple of, I love the fact that the guy in prison and they say, Oh, who is that? It's like, he's, he's really dangerous. He's a poet. I mean, I just love that words could be so dangerous. And, you know, they talk about the, the newspaper that he would print. And there's also kind of a fun reference when there's some guy in the bar spinning a story and he says, yeah, you know, I'm talking about this revolutionary, but, you know, there's no, it's it's like the disclaimer on movies. It's like there's no connection to any person living or dead. And it's almost like saying, like, yeah, I'm going to make some references here, but... You know, don't, you know, to the censors, to the Italian censors, like, don't read anything into this, really. I'm not really saying anything about America. I mean, about Italian politics. I'm, you know, this is, and there's that fun sense, too, in all of these films. And I mean, a lot of the Italian, the spaghetti westerns is, you know, this was a really tumultuous time politically in Italy and to directly criticize the government or certain things that were going on would have gotten some of these filmmakers and did get some of these filmmakers in trouble. And part of, I think the appeal of doing these Westerns is no, 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 it's not about Italy. It's America in the South, in the, you know, whatever, 1600s, 1800s, whatnot. And it has nothing to do with Italian politics, but it has everything to do with Italian politics. And, you know, I think part of what makes the spaghetti westerns really interesting, too, is that they were reflecting that kind of moral ambiguity of the time because the old American westerns and a lot of the TV westerns that were going on at this time were very black and white with very clear kind of sense of morality. And the spaghetti westerns really gave us those anti-heroes, those kind of morally ambiguous characters who were not necessarily all bad, not necessarily all good, might have their own moral code, but might not be necessarily on the side of the law. And a lot of that, I think, reflected what was going on in Italy at the time. We were fortunate enough here in San Diego, we ran a series of um, spaghetti westerns and also a series of uh, Italian genre cinema. And we have an Italian film festival here run uh, by artistic director Antonio Inota And he teaches classes on Italian cinema. And it was so great to have him come in and really talk about the politics of the time. And, you know, there's stuff that totally American audiences would not get in some of these films, in terms of the political connections, the very specific political connections that were being made. And it was really great to have him there talking about some of this. I wish I could remember some of the brilliant things he pointed out. But uh there is a really interesting sense. And, you know, in the 60s, especially the late 60s, there was a lot of political upheaval around the globe in, you know, 67, 68 that films all over the place were reflecting. And I really think that these spaghetti westerns in a not an in-your-face sort of way and not in a very kind of overt sort of way were dealing with a lot of that ambiguity and unrest and uncertainty that people especially I think young people were feeling at the time you know you don't you can't trust those in the establishment you can't trust the government you can't you know trust people with money and I think there's a line at the end of Big Gun Down where Lee Van Cleef has said something and the the Braxton character says like yeah you're way too smart to be a senator or "You know, <laughs> way too honest I mean that's one thing I've always enjoyed about Film and pop culture is like you can put these films into this bigger social context that makes them interesting and makes them timeless in an interesting way to look back and say like, yeah, this is what it was reflecting and look at how they did it and look at how they did it in a entertaining way instead of, you know, a very kind of academic way.
5: In Italy specifically, you're right, there was a lot of tumult around the world in the 60s. But in Italy specifically, most of the actors that I've worked with that worked there during that time said that it was a really quaint, beautiful, lovely, calm, tranquil place up until well, there was a bombing in either 68 or 69 that really triggered the years of lead Italy. And so most of the spaghetti westerns or most of the spaghetti westerns from the classic periods got in under the wire, I think, with a kind of a nicer, less hostile Italy But you're right, like if you just, Mike, if you just saw the third uh, Sabata film, Return of Sabata, a lot of people have interpreted the the Irish characters there to be a thinly veiled Italian mafia.
2: So many of these filmmakers probably grew up either during World War Two, or shortly thereafter when, you know, the country was just in tatters. I'm sure a lot of them were very familiar with Mussolini and his politics. So, I mean, just to, to you know, we were talking yesterday about uh, Bullet for the General and just, you know, the, the communist uh, stuff that was going through that film. And it's just like, okay, yeah. I mean, Mike, when did spaghetti westerns really start to fade and when did the other genres of of italian films start to pick up
5: well, Spaghetti Westerns, the first wave of them were starting to fall off and were, you know, revived by the comedic take on the Spaghetti Westerns. But just to use Van Cleef as an example, he made $400,000 as a salary on Sabata. And then a couple of years later, starring in Bad Man's River and Captain Apache in 71. Sabata was 69. And in Bad Man's River and Captain Apache, he made hundred fifty k each for those. The, the budgets and the salaries were declining in rapid in rapid fashion between 69 and 71. Trinity in the early 70s, those that gave a new lease on life to the spaghetti westerns. But 72 and 73 were the first big years that the Teschi really took off the Eurocrime fad, which were the Italians' takes on films like Dirty Harry and The Godfather. They did those pretty reliably between like 72 and 80. That became the dominant action genre.
0: And then we had Giallo.
2: Did Van Cleef cross over into the Eurocrime films?
5: Very stubbornly, he stuck with the Western. He did make three Eurocrime movies, but stubbornly, he stuck with the Western and he stuck with Italy too long. He really should have. uh, He, by the late 70s, he said, what am I doing? I need to get back into Hollywood, get back into American TV. And so he tried, but he really waited too late.
2: I mean, is that what kind of led us to like Master Ninja and those kind of things?
5: He had a pacemaker. He had a bad, heart episode and had a pacemaker installed in 82. And so he was, you know, even further out of the running for real action stuff. You know, the master was, you know, a good way to put him in a ninja suit and have him doubled very easily because, you know, it's easy to double guy in a wearing head to Joe pajamas. So and, then, you know, like what was it like 1984? He did a movie called Codename Wild Geese and he's supposed to be running and he shot from the waist up, and I notice he's walking but pumping his arms as if he's running. So, poor guy, you know, this aging action star who had a pacemaker and really couldn't hack it. You know, he had, he had the mean face of tough guy, and so he just stuck with those kind of roles. Seems
2: like he should have been behind a desk pulling strings at that point, you know? Just like, the guy behind the guy behind the guy when they open up the door at the end, and he's Mr. Big there.
5: Well, he kind of had a... Mostly seated role for his last film role and kind of like John Wayne in The Shootist, John Wayne's character dying of cancer in The Shootist right before John Wayne dies of cancer in real life. Lee Van Cleef's character in his last film role dies of a heart attack right before Lee died of a heart attack.
2: Run Man Run has its qualities. There are a few scenes that I've found interesting. And yeah, you're right, Beth. There's a lot of torture in there, especially if you like seeing Thomas Millian hanging from his arms. There's a lot of that in the film. That happens a few times. Uh, But yeah, I would say uh, notwithstanding, I I, I think it's a wig that Millian is wearing in uh, Face to Face. Notwithstanding that, I'd say that Face to Face is definitely a far stronger film And it's interesting that it was just a year before. It feels like Run, Man, Run was many years later. It was just so such a weaker entry in the series. I mean, especially because the big gun down is what it is. Face-to-face is super strong. And then Run, Man, Man, Run almost feels like an afterthought. But yeah, face-to-face, again, thank you, Mike, for for bringing that one to my attention because that one was just really, really riveting.
0: Well, Run, Man, Run almost feels like he did the other two films, and then a studio or a producer said, "You know, I think we could get some more mileage out of that character if we made another film now and he was kind of like, "Uh, eh, all right, if you really want like all right it's a paycheck and i'll I'll do it and it was almost like those franchise films where you make them after the point of everybody really having an interest in them. And it felt like an afterthought, but yeah, face to face. Thank you so much. I had not seen it before and I loved it. And I loved it because it really did have this kind of rich social and political commentary going on in it. And I think this reflects, you know, something that was very prominent in, in Italy, which is this sense of like the intellectual elite and the working class and the contrast between the two and kind of the distrust and, The characters were fascinating because you have this character who's this professor, this academic who's sickly and, you know, retiring from teaching to go off to, you know, warmer climates to hopefully get better. And, you know,
5: not not only sickly, but terminal, right?
0: Well, he keeps saying that he could die. Like, but they never really, I mean, the one guy told me, he says, no, 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 you'll go down there and you'll breathe some cl- clean air and you'll be fine. And he's like, you know, no, I could be going there, you know, for my death or whatnot. But, you know, him in, in sharp contrast to the Million character, who's, you know, a man of action and, you know, very vigorous and, and it's an interesting contrast because they, they both kind of cross paths and, and each venture into the other's kind of territory to change. One, you know, Million, I think, changes for the better and the professor changes for the worse. But it, it's a, I thought it was a really fascinating look at these two contrasting people. And again, I think that's what works in this and Big Gundown is having Million in sharp contrast to someone else. I think that really helps the films play much better.
5: The one thing that I do not buy in face to face, because you know, I know it's tricky to show a character, you know, basically doing 180. You have it has to be gradual to be credible. The transition, I didn't buy that his first real egregious act was to rape that girl. I just that just seemed like for a milk toast professor. It's a, you know just to violently assault sexually assault some woman and especially for it to be the woman of a guy in your gang who's possessive over her it just it didn't ring true to me
0: it was a bit of a jump
5: yeah definitely
0: i actually had to go back and rewatch the scene because i thought did i like miss something cuz like he he just suddenly starts punching or not slapping her like punching her and i was going did i like, was I not paying attention to something she did before?
2: Yeah, the violence against women in this
5: film is a little much. It's Yeah, it's not even really motivated in that case, I didn't think.
0: But in the scene after, you know, she's shown smiling like it was all okay. Doesn't make any sense. The only character that kind of comments on it is the tomboyish girl who says, you know, and today I saw that some men take women against their will – and then, you know, that woman kind of slinks out of the bar and then she gets beat up again by her boyfriend that is jealous. And then she ends up going with the professor after and dumping. It was like that poor character, that poor female character was just beaten and bounced around and then has to die.
2: The death of the little kid really got me in the big uh, robbery that they have going. And when he is one, you know, He's so proud that he can read and that he ends up reading this note and reading it out loud, which is just like, hey, the the bank is being robbed right now, and you need to go down and get this posse, da-da-da. And then when Milian hears that, he's just like, no, 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 give me that, give me that back. And yeah, those uh, robbers come out of the bank and just lay that kid down i'm like oh man and you can really see on million's face that it's very much affecting him and i was like yeah i can see why you know this was not a good thing so it does present a lot of morally ambiguous scenes where you're just like okay yeah this is not the way that this is supposed to be going but luckily our characters do get to a different point by the end of the film
0: There's the scene before the professor turns kind of darker uh, where he's where they find the money in the letters and he's gathering it up like, ah, great. You know, I, this just fell into my lap. I have money now. And then the professor starts reading the letter about, you know, the parents who sold their house or their farm or something so that the son could have money. And Milian's like, stop reading. Like, I don't want to hear that because now it makes like now the money's kind of tainted and I'm not going to feel good just taking it. And the professor says, yeah, if you listen to this, then suddenly you have to think about what you're doing and how you feel about what you're doing. And it's going to change you. And it ends up, it does change him. And then the professor changes, but in the opposite direction. Like, he kind of gets this weird bloodlust after a certain point and, and, you know, wants to kill people. And he's like, I just had to kill people.
5: In My Eurocrime documentary, I, I you know... I ask a lot of my interviewees why the killing of kids in Italian cinema, like if if a kid dies in an American movie back then, you had to that had to be a big deal. You could not do that lightly. But Italian cinema, for some reason, that was killing a kid was just one of the thrills of the movie. And so I ask a lot of my interviewees why that was such a almost a fetish for them. And the only one that came up with a good answer to me was a guy, a director named Mario Caiano, and he said that it's because the Italian mothers dote over their kids so much that you know that was like the thing that you could really you know be guaranteed that would push a button
0: there's a lot of interesting social and political commentary going on in that uh, in that one town where there's the gunfight and you have the rich guy in the hotel overlooking the whole thing keeping his hands perfectly clean but watching things going on that he sort of has a hand in and then while the gunfight's going on you see all these establishments that I think have his name on it. It's like Taylor's Saloon and Taylor's Bank. And like the sense of class and ownership and power, I think comes through sometimes subtly like that, where, you know, you're just, it's in the background. You can notice this if you want, or you could, you know, can pass you by. But I think that Salima is very interested in kind of exploring that, class difference, and also just that ideological difference between some of these characters. Valente was also in Citizen, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, which, again, is another film that's really politically charged in terms of its commentary. And I think he was an actor who let his politics kind of dictate some of his choices in his films. And that character is fascinating, because he really, talk about character arcs, I mean, he goes through a incredible change from the beginning to the end of this film
5: volante later looked back at his two sergio leone films and kind of regretted them he, or looked down at least looked down his nose at him as being lesser because they weren't you know there was not a political overtone so my final word on face to face is there's a member of oregard's gang played by an actor named jose torres and he's the real mean-faced looking guy and Jose Torres was a big character actor in Spaghetti Westerns, turns up in a lot of them, Death Rides a Horse, for instance. He is in the big gundown also as Paco Molinas, and you may remember Paco Molinas as the stiff across a horse that Corbett rides into town with. And, you know, there's a scene where Lee Van Cleef briefly lifts his head and you get to see Jose Torres's face. But I always assume, because as we have acknowledged, there are multiple, multiple cuts of the big gun down. I always assumed I would see more of Jose Torres's character in some longer cut, but I never have. And again, it's weird because he was a pretty big character actor and he basically just plays a stiff laid across a saddle.
0: Maybe there's some scene on the cutting room floor somewhere. That's a really
2: good point because there is that whole thing of like, oh yeah, here you go, who's Cuchillo? And it's like, no, no, that's not him, that's this other guy. But there's also, when Cuchillo rides out from that uh, Queen Bee-type lady's plantation ranch, I think it's like the next cut is Corbett with Cuchillo tied uh, behind him, like leading him while he's on his horse, and I'm just like, well, wait a second, how did that happen? Because Corbett was still back at the ranch when Cuchillo was riding off. So it felt like there was a cut scene there. And then even between the cane fields and that next bit of chase, it's like there's a really abrupt music break right there. And it's just like, I wonder what happened here too. I don't know if that was just part of the restoration or what was going on, but yeah, it feels like there might be more to the big gun down that we haven't seen yet. Alright guys, let's go ahead and take another break And we're going to play a preview for next week's show A golden bullet When the bullet Turns red
4: The general Will be dead El Chuncho The Bandit Nino, the gringo. Side by side, they killed for what they believed in, gold. El Santo, the holy one. What the Lord giveth, he took away. Adelita, the woman, she gave aid and comfort to the enemy, then blasted him to pieces. The general, he needed many guns. He got one bullet, a golden bullet, a bullet for the general.
2: That's right. We are wrapping up Spaghetti Western Month with a look at a bullet for the general. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Beth and Mike. So, Beth, what is going on with you?
0: I just got done relaunching my podcast, and so I'm pretty excited. Um, it's got a slightly different format. We've got a few new segments in it, and the big change is I'm doing a companion video to each podcast, which is called Geeky Gourmet, where I show you how to make a themed food or drink to go with whatever the topic is. And I have to say that I have done themed food for Spaghetti Westerns when we did our Spaghetti Western series, and we actually served some chocolate pasta chocolate spaghetti for one screening actually so um but yeah it, it combines all the things i love which is movies and food and then putting those two things together for an audience um is a lot of fun so the podcast is cinema junkie and you can find that at kpbs.org cinema junkie and um yeah so i'll be cooking and talking about movies
5: didn't didn't george costanza combine something similar no no that was food and sex his favorite salt and meats.
0: Ah.
2: And Mike, the busiest man in the South, what are you up to lately?
5: I'm just on Blu-ray treadmill until until something changes in the industry and stuff and allows me to push the big projects out. It, the Blu-ray treadmill is actually probably where I belong because, you know, very finite deadlines, finite to uh, just be able to push out projects of reasonable length. Neither of these have been announced, but by sheer coincidence, I am working on a Lee Van Cleef title, and I'm also working on a Sergio Solima title, but neither have been announced, so I can't announce them. And they are two different titles there. Van Cleef is not in the Solima film.
2: Well, thank you so much for being on the show, folks. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
4: Deu, <risos> oh, o negócio tava
3: bom,
4: bicho. O negócio tava bom, só quando ele tava batendo, tô muito
3: pedro. Quem diria, hein, Greta Garbo, acabou de irajar, hein? É, mas eu tava falando pra você, né? Depois que eu passei a me sentir, aí o negócio ficou diferente. <risos>
2: end of this episode of the projection booth and as the end credits roll we wanted to thank you the listening audience here at the projection
1: booth podcast with mike white host extraordinaire